You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Lohman, a food historian and the author of Eight Flavors, the untold story of American cuisine. We discussed how she went from art school to historic cooking, making a career as a blogger, and how she defines American for the purposes of her work. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. Well, hello, Alicia. Good morning. (laughs) I feel like we're both still a little like just rolled out of bed. I did put a face on for you. (laughs) Thank you. I I Mm -hmm. put a face on as well. Mm -hmm. I was completely ready to have this conversation and was sitting at my laptop at like 1050 like, all right. And then at 11.01, I looked up and was like, no. <laughs> it's fine. I'm just uh, like yeah. here with my tea, just getting getting a start on the day. Good, it's, good. We're just going to have a lovely chat. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Hinkley, Ohio, which is a rural town about, oh, like 30 miles south of Cleveland. Um, So Northeast Ohio. So I actually grew up in the house that my dad lived in from a teenager onwards. My grandmother gave it to my mom and dad the year that I was born. And so that was how my family was able to have a little bit of property. And when I was growing up there, it was really pretty rural. I didn't have any really close neighbors and we had a couple acres of our own. As far as what I ate, uh, some of it was regional and some of it was uh, you probably like the, the crap that we got fed like in the 80s and 90s that I look back on and yeah. it's just totally remarkable. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do remember things like squeeze-its and gushers. And I'm like, I guess we just didn't know better back then. But those were real foods that we ate. And my mom was an exceptional cook, uh, but it was very like Midwestern. We did do some lasagna. We did do some chili, nothing particularly spicy. And then like kind of the regional cuisine in Northeast Ohio is very Eastern European. So there was also a lot of pierogi action. There would be like some chicken paprikash, some beef stroganoff, those kinds of things. But the most, like, I think the most sort of resonant experience that I had with food growing up is that my mom was an award-winning baker. So basically, as soon as I could stand, uh, I was baking with her. You know, it's funny. I didn't realize that baking was hard until like food reality TV started coming out. All the chefs were like, oh, no, I don't bake. I don't bake. So it was really valuable to me to get that experience first and do the quote unquote harder side of cooking (laughs) things. And then as I got like a little bit older, uh, my parents both went to work when my my brother went to college. And so it was sort of my job to come home from school and start dinner. And so that was the moment that I started to learn how to cook. Wow. And so... Yeah, that's a really interesting mix of things because you people associate, I think, the gushers side of 90s youth with like other new processed foods, I guess. And but it seems like you had a, a like a, a a real mix of home cooking and eating the oh, definitely. The, yeah, I, I also feel like m- many, at least in my world growing up, like many families' households are a blend. I think a lot of families' households are a blend. I think that we yeah. do a lot of uh, culture and class shaming by saying, oh, you only go to McDonald's, blah, blah, blah. I mean, 
we can go into all of that too. <laughs> but like, yeah, of course my family went to McDonald's because, you know, how else do you get a six-year-old to shut up? Like you just go to McDonald's and like, you know, they, they wanted you there. We'd go play in the playground afterwards too. But yeah, my mom also, you know, cooked meals from scratch for me because, you know, this was still the era where um, some people had the luxury of having a parent at home full time, which I feel like is, is really hard for, for someone who would even, who would choose to want that and choose to want to spend that time with that child. I feel like economically that's becoming less and less available. So my mom got to raise us up until I was in eighth grade when she went back to work. And so that allowed her the access and the ability and the time Mm -hmm. to be able to make meals from scratch as well. And kind of interestingly, like her mom didn't really cook very much. Her mom did a lot with sort of processed food. But then, I don't know, my mom moved out to the country and just like started baking pies and like making stew from scratch, like something like came alive inside her. Um, And to this day, she's still an incredible cook and incredible baker. There's no stopping her from doing like an all out Thanksgiving or Christmas meal. Um, Even if it's just going to be like the three of us eating it, she will still and she'll set the table too. I think that's her favorite part. Oh, and it's it's that's really great. And I talk so much, I think, about in writing and in interviews and stuff. It's like, how do people eat differently? And it's always that answer is you give them the time and you give them the access. And that's that's such an important thing to talk about, I think, in terms of, you know, our, our food upbringings. Absolutely. And I feel like the time issue is one that I especially get very irritated with. I remember seeing a video a couple years ago with two very famous male food writers. They're making a roast chicken with roast vegetables. And they're like, this only costs $14. And oh, isn't this so hard to do? Like people think this is so hard. And I'm like, you assholes. Like you have <laughs> no idea. You have no yeah. idea what it's like to be raising two jobs. You have no idea what it's like to be a single parent. Mm-hmm. You have no idea the real choices that people are making. And you're just like, oh, I just, if people hate making chicken. They're so stupid. It just like pissed me off. <laughs> and then of course, like the caloric content when you're yeah. like, man, I'm hungry and I've got all these kids to feed. Like, of course I'm going to pick fast food as opposed mm-hmm. to like making a roast chicken with roast vegetables, which if I have for lunch, I'm like starving two hours later. Like, it's just like such a, a lack of connection to everyday people. But of also course. I think in my case, it was just the nineties and like, yeah, you bought your kids <laughs> gushers and food by the foot. And that's just kind of what you did. Right. Well, you fell in love with historical food while working at a living history museum as a teenager. And art school, I wanted to ask, why did you go to art school? Well, I didn't really think history was like my career. I ended up at that job because my mom worked there. And so when I turned 16, she was like, you're too old to stay at home all summer. You got to get a job. And I was like, okay, well, I'll apply at um, parties and work with yeah. my friends. And she was like, no, you're coming to work for me. <laughs> so she was a manager there. So like I got the job and I was like, didn't want to. I wanted to go be with my friends and not do this like super nerdy thing of working in a museum, like in costume. And it ended up obviously like changing my life. Mom was right. <laughs> a lot of, a lot in part because the people that I worked with were such like just exceptional, passionate individuals. And, you know, for me, I just wasn't in history in high school because you're not really learning about the lives of people. You're like memorizing dates and it's always very war focused Mm -hmm. as opposed to like any (laughs) of the life that people led in between. Right. So you're learning about sort of like governments and dates that this happened and, you know, and it it doesn't there's nothing there that makes you think that history is populated with human beings. Yeah. But museums like the one I worked at or like probably more famously people know like Plymouth Plantation or Colonial Williamsburg. 
they are focusing on social history. So like day-to-day mm-hmm. life. And then in the house there that I worked in with my quote-unquote family, there was a wood-burning cast iron stove. And so that's when I, I just loved working with the fire and with the stove, with this really kind of simple piece of equipment. And mm-hmm. we were also working from historical books too. So right. I started to get the sense of like what that era of history tasted like and uh, being able to read old recipes like that. But I went to art school because I liked art. <laughs> and that's like what I sort of excelled at when I was in high school. And I was lucky that there was a really, really excellent art school near right far enough away from home that I could move, but mm-hmm. close enough that I, it wasn't too scary. So I went to the Clinton Institute of Art. And so like, that's, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but that was my plan. And then interestingly, it sort of led me back to food history. I majored in a digital arts major with a fine arts minor in uh, food and not food, <laughs> in photo and video, mm-hmm. which I obviously do a lot of food photography now. And it was a five-year program, so I had to do a thesis project. And so I ended up doing an installation of what today we'd call like a pop-up restaurant that served colonial era food for a contemporary audience. So although after that, I sort of like dropped it for a couple of years because I was sick of it, like it clearly was this culmination that I had. I realized I had this sort of unique perspective because of my already the, the couple of years I'd worked in this very strange work environment and that I'd had this background in food and cooking at home. And it just all kind of came together. Um, as part of this really great program that I was in. How has that art education influenced your career in food? I mean, I hugely. It, you know, it's funny because <laughs> when people ask me like what I did in college and right. I say that, you know, I went to art school, they're like, oh, you're really using that degree, which is what people love to say <laughs> to art students anyway, which I think is bullshit. But yeah. I mean, in a very practical way, it has helped me immensely in that as part of my degree, I received training in terms of like working with freelancers. And like working with clients, I should say. So like being able to run my own business in a certain, just learning like things like invoicing. That was all a part mm-hmm. of like what I was learning. Um, so when I wanted to quit my full-time job and start working for myself, that was much less intimidating. And I, you know, designed and launched my own website because I knew both graphic design and some basic HTML when I first started blogging. Obviously, photography is a huge part of being in the foodie world. You know, you if you're whether you're blogging or now, of course, like a lot more on Instagram or writing for a commission, you're often required to provide your own photographs. So my photography skills have been hugely helpful. And when I'm sort of working with people who want to get into food writing more, that is often one of the hard, most difficult hurdles that food writing and food photography are often sort of like interjoined. You're building that Instagram audience, right? So like, I feel very, very, very lucky to have that background too. But I think in a bigger way, the sort of community and uh, my professors that I work with, they encouraged you to to think big, to think conceptually, to think of projects. And so even formulating this idea of back when I got started of what if I did start a food blog and I looked at food history and used to connect to the present and sort of doing all the, even the, the concept of doing this thing that I didn't really have any other, um, I didn't have a mentor at that point. You know, I didn't have a, a concept of what my career could look like. Even just thinking about it and getting started on it, I think came from the education that I got in college too. Right. And, you know, you moved to New York where that yeah. was, where you kind of got started doing this sort of work. Why was New York the place for that? at that time? I mean, I think a couple of things came together. I mean, I I mentioned to you earlier too, that really a professor, like within my fifth year and I'm doing this restaurant, it's all very crazy. And 
he was the one that was kind of like, you need to go to New York. Like there just isn't space for what you're doing here right now. And this is, you know, I went to school in Cleveland as well. And especially in 2005, when I was graduating, like Cleveland wasn't doing great. Um, And it was, people were already talking a lot about brain drain and college graduates leaving the Midwest and going to the coasts. But there wasn't, it's, it sounds harsh to say there wasn't the opportunity there because in a way I did move back to Cleveland for a couple of years from 2018 to 2021. And it was because there was really exciting things happening here. And actually because a lot of people had moved, went to the coast, got new ideas and then brought them back to the Midwest. Like there's hugely positive things happening in Cleveland now. But I think to me, the tipping point was I'd never lived anywhere else in my life. You know, I'd been on one trip out of the country at that point, which I felt very fortunate for. But, you know, my family didn't have the money to do like a, a semester abroad or anything. Like it was, I was working, I was paying for a lot of things myself. And I just thought it was really important to live somewhere else yeah. and get a different perspective on the world. And, you know, and sort of a soft landing, I'd had a couple of friends that moved out there the year before. And then really fortunately, I had a professor that said, you know, I'm from New York. I keep an apartment out there. Like, if you ever need a place to stay for a month, just let me know. And I was like, actually thinking of moving there. So I had a place to stay um, when I first moved out there. And then I also then had roommates and it just sort of happened. And then I ended up spending 13 years there. So, wow. And, you know, now that you've left after being in New York for so long, how has that influenced your work? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day because I really became an adult in New York City. And I do feel like kind of douchey now being like, oh, but I lived, I, I lived here for a long time. <laughs> yes, you know, but like 13, you know, I moved when I was 23 mm-hmm. and I left when I was 36. So like that to me, I mean, obviously that's a, that's a time of a lot of growth and a, a really incredible place to do that, as you know, being <laughs> a New York yourself. But Honestly, I decided to leave at the moment when I was really happy. Mm-hmm. Just I felt like I had done it. Like I was a success in the city and my life was happy there. And it was the moment that I was happy as opposed to like some great disappointment or disaster that I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Like I've done this. I'm ready to go. So the first move, I decided to come back to Cleveland. My parents were still here. And it was in a way a test to see if my business could exist outside of New York. Um, this was pre-pandemic and we were in 2018. And, but I moved somewhere that was both close enough that I was still planning on coming back to work every week or two months and seeing if like, I mean, God, when I moved to New York City, if you had an out of state or like out of city telephone number, like you couldn't get a job. There was so much of this like very insular, like you have to be in New York, you have to be a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. That was the most intimidating part, you know, seeing yeah. like, will I still, can I still do events in New York? Will people have any respect for me? <laughs> Obviously, a lot of that has changed since the pandemic. And in if there's any positives to come out of it, the fact that you don't have to be located in a certain place, whether you want to be or not to do your job. So it was my first kind of experiment with it. And it did end up, end up being a lot more traveling back and forth to New York, which could be really exhausting. But also part of the reason I moved at that moment is I knew I was about to start on a new book project and I wanted to try living somewhere with a lower cost of living yeah, and just a, a different pace of life. And I just knew that I didn't want to live in New York anymore. So I knew there wasn't going to be any sort of big regrets. Just wasn't quite sure what the next step was. Right. So I was in Cleveland for three years. I, I Well, a little more than I'd said two to three years when I moved out there. But then there was this like pandemic thing. I don't know if you <laughs> heard. And I was really relieved to be there, too, because I could be there and support my parents which would have been so scary and I'm sure has been so scary for a lot of people. 
And like I mentioned to you, I just moved to Las Vegas at the end of August. A great <laughs> opportunity came up. I really love the city. I love its like natural wonder. And so now it's a little bit more of seeing like, okay, a lot of my money comes from doing live events, which obviously weren't happening during the pandemic. But it's also become sort of a weird time for doing online classes. People are sick right. of being online. But I did just come back from New York to try to do like first in-person um, talks and events since the pandemic started. And people are also still like a little hesitant to show up in person. All of it's understandable. Like I'm sick of the loss of connectivity that we get through Zoom too. Mm-hmm. But like it makes total sense that if someone feels under the weather, they're not going to show up for class. So it's things have sort of hit a weird moment, but I'm just trying to like hurt it out. Hopefully one day be able to expand the brand and events a little bit more to the West Coast too. And yeah. I don't know, at least I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm like, I'm all about learning and experiences. Yeah. And it, it, part of that is just like, I want to live in a different part of the country so I can understand that better and maybe sort of understand our country as a whole better too. For sure. And so, you know, I know you started out writing about food as a blogger, you know, four pounds flour. How has your relationship to being a food person online changed since you started in the industry? Because it is, like yeah. you said, now probably a lot more visually focused than it was. When people were bloggers, you could take a real shitty picture and <laughs> post it. <laughs> to, to be now fair, you can't. I yeah, was lucky. I'm sure and you definitely it. can't. You're not going to get those Instagram <laughs> likes. But for me, again, I'm like that's like the coming from art school too. Like yeah. it wasn't just like my content has to be good. Because I didn't really think of myself as a writer. I still don't mm-hmm. in a way. The writing to me is like a means to an end, a way to have yeah. a conversation about food and to express ideas. So coming from art school, it was like, no, my photos can absolutely not look shitty. I'll tell you this. And bless him, my friend Jay, who I haven't talked to in many years, you know, part of the art school process is going through the critique process, which I think is honestly one of the most valuable skills that I learned there. And so like in my fifth year and I'm like in my major and we're this really tight group of people and I'm working on, you know, opening up this pop-up restaurant and I'm doing a website. And so I did food photography for the first time. And like I had this critique of my food photographs and my friend Jay went, that's looking like some Chinese food, like China, wait, how did he say it? Some like, he said, that's looking like some Chinese fast food menu photographs. And I was like, (laughs) oh no. So it was this real kick in the pants. Like, I mean, I think maybe the closer equivalent is it looked, it looked a little bit more like the collages that you see in the sides of bodegas. Like that's the kind of photography I was doing because it is a really specific skill to be able to like, get in there and understand just like portrait photography or landscape photography or animal photography are all like very separate skill sets. Food photography, there are certain tricks that you had to learn. And so I really mm-hmm. had to push myself to get better very, very quickly so that I didn't have like uh, Chinese takeout slash side of the bodega, which by the way, I'm obsessed with bodega collages. And also I've noticed the aesthetic is changing recently. The last time I was in New York, but maybe that's a different conversation. <laughs> So to me, like the visual elements were extremely important and I knew the food had to look delicious or at least interesting. Is every photo on that blog that I wrote from like, what, 2008 to 2018, is every photo a banger? Absolutely not. But I do feel proud of that. But yeah, it is super, it is super visual. But interestingly, like a lot of my work has now shifted away from individual dishes to Mm -hmm. more broader storytelling about food as culture. So my photography too has become much more documentarian of the the travels I'll do and the people that I'm meeting and then the foods that we're eating together too. So the transition to Instagram was was super natural for me. Twitter, I'm not, see, this is the thing. I'm like, I'm not in writer Twitter. Like you're so yeah. in writer Twitter and food Twitter. 
I just kind of like lurk and retweet. <laughs> so, it's, so it's some ways, again, even though I'm like, have a book out and working my second book and started as a blogger, like I still, I never think of myself as a writer. Right, That's right, what I right. try to say when I'm like, well, um, somebody asked me what I do for a living and I don't really have a conversation, but it still doesn't work. So they're like, what do you want to write about? It's fine. <laughs> can you tell me what, what your next book is about? Yeah, I can. So I'm looking at foods that are on the verge of extinction in America. And I traveled all over the country to talk to different people who are the, the shepherds and the harvesters and the farmers of these different foods. And the reason the foods are becoming endangered are for a variety of reasons. But I think most importantly, that all these foods are tied very deeply to often a people in a place. Mm-hmm. And the peoples that they belong to are peoples that within America have been historically and systematically oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the ways that America colonizes is by taking yeah. away culture, which means taking away food. So it's, it's looking at what happened and honestly a lot about the history of American colonialism, but also this, these stories of, you know, survival, survival and thriving too. Right. And how these different peoples throughout America have been able to hold on to these foods too. And then like a little bit of call to action. My, my hope for this book is that the people and the products that I'm featuring will get the attention, the money, the support that they need and want, maybe even the legislature. I'm just, I'm hoping that this book serves these people and serves as a platform for their voices too. So for sure. So that's as much as like, I don't want to get into too much detail because I'm no, still no, writing it. Like once <laughs> it's in the publication process, you know, you can like talk and talk and talk about it. But yeah, at this point, someone could could probably write it faster than me. <laughs> and totally because I'm a, I've, I don't think I'm a slow writer. It just takes time, Alicia. You know, the word, you I know. know it sucks. It's the worst thing I've ever done. And I am a writer <laughs> and I hate writing a book. Yeah. I mean, I I hate writing a book because for myriad reasons that I probably shouldn't talk about publicly, but um, it's exhausting. Of- I mean, I'll talk about them for you. It's mentally exhausting. Yeah. It's physically exhausting. Yeah. It's, I mean, it gives me anxiety. I'm thinking about it all the time for multiple years of one's life, right? The financial mm-hmm. support isn't there. You said it's something on there. Twitter that I was like, same, so hard <laughs> that you, I, it, paraphrase, you said, writing a book takes a lot of thinking, but how do you have time for thinking when you need to pay the bills? And that, exactly with both of these books is the hardest part. The money runs yeah. out. People are like, would you yeah. get in advance? Yeah. Well, that lasted me about eight months of like living and doing the research. Like it all got invested back into the book. I'm not like living the high life here. Mm-hmm. And then you have to work because you still have bills yeah. to pay. So where do you find the time to get the space, not just to write, but to think about these ideas of making a great piece of work mm-hmm. when you're also doing whatever you need to do to get those bills paid. Of course. You, you know, you're working two full-time jobs when you're writing a book. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's no, absolutely, absolutely exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. And my, yeah. And my the third of my advance that I've gotten so far, you know, it wouldn't have paid my rent for two months. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it, it sucks. I don't know. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have agreed to it. It's, it absolutely sucks. And then yeah. I kind of like, did a second one because I was like, well, I don't know how else to make money. <laughs> but yeah. then after this, like, I really have to give it a think. I mean, I feel I, in some ways I feel guilty because obviously this is what we're talking about is aspirational for probably yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. who are listening to this podcast. For sure. I don't know. I mean, I've spent 10 <laughs> years of my life on on two books and yeah. I'm really proud of my first book. And I think that the second book is is going to be something that I'm proud of too. I've gotten to work with great editors and we've 
you know, made something great together. And I think that the book has done something. I think that like the big benefit of it, and probably why you're motivated to do it is that we can like put something good and thoughtful into the world. Right. That will, I, I, I hope with my first book too, bettered somebody's life in an indirect way, you know, just right. created more understanding around food and culture in America. Yeah. But man, am I poor. <laughs> I am poor. I, you know, I'm single, I should say to everybody like, and like happily so like, this is where I want to be. Now I live with a housemate, but I was living by myself for a while. And I just like read some big article about how like the society isn't designed for people to stay single who want to yeah. stay single. Yeah. And so it's really hard. It, it, and it does feel like a really accomplishment, like every month that I do it, where I'm like, yeah, rent paid you. Yes. <laughs> and it's hard to sort of juggle that between people's perceptions of me. And yeah. you probably feel the same way too, where it's like, yeah. you know, I'm successful. I've got a book out. I've got some name recognition. You know, I'm not major food celeb. That's totally fine. <laughs> but I think people like look at what I'm doing. They're like, yes, that's what I want to be doing. But ev everybody, poof. It's tough some days. It's a real haul. And, you know, I don't want to say that like love makes up for money, mm -hmm. but you to get through those times of real stress and uncertainty, you really have to be love and be invested in what you're doing. So like definitely after this book, I have to really think about what I want the next step of my career to be because it's just incredibly exhausting. This will be another like five-year process from proposal to publication. Yep. The financial stress is real. The 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 artistic physicality of writing a book is really draining and uncertain and and difficult on your sort of mental health. But like I got to meet amazing people and do amazing things that mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had the excuse to do otherwise. And I think that that's like the addiction and the appeal that keeps bringing me back. Like if I pitch <laughs> this book, that means I get to go to this place and meet these people and meet them on their level and, you know, and, and, in, and in their space and in their life. And to me, like that is really... It's the access that being a writer gives you, um, both that people might be open to speak to you, but also the allowance it gives myself to be like, yeah, let's, I'm totally, like I went to the Navajo Nation and volunteered at a festival that celebrates the Navajo churro sheep and assisted this cook and butcher in butchering a whole animal. And I'm sorry, at least you're vegan. I forgot. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm a vegetarian. It's okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I actually am too, but for me... Like learning about meeting people where they're at is also about learning mm -hmm. about their food in every single aspect. Of course. Like I had never yeah. butchered an animal before. And I, especially someone who has eaten meat and does still occasionally eat meat, I feel like I've always felt like that experience is really important yeah. to be with that animal. So, but I never, you know, I'm not just going to like pick up and volunteer, like fly to Arizona and then drive four hours to like volunteer at a sheep festival. I mean, I do want to do that. If someone asks me if you want to do that, it'd be like, absolutely. But it, writing it in this book allowed me to do that. And now like I've met yeah. people that I feel so connected to and uh, I'm just rambling now. But yeah, I think no, this, no, no, this, I love it. This book is really special. I feel connected yeah. to the people that I interviewed and spent time with in a way that I didn't get to do in the first book. Right. Um, in this really meaningful way. So that's sure. a, that's amazing. That's that's yeah. living life, right? <laughs> No, I, it's, it is great. And I, I am, I am too uh, bitter about the book process, but I also like to talk about it because I do feel like as writers, we feel a little bit like we owe it 
to the fact that we make a living being writers Mm -hmm. to be nice about it. And I think that that's not fair necessarily to people who are coming up and like get uh, an idea of it as something, you know, I grew up looking at magazines and looking at the contributor page and being like, these people are living the great life. And now I know that that's not true. <laughs> it's fucking hard. It's and you really have to hard. Like, fight to get paid. I mean, especially now, like both the amount of money paid for both articles and books has, you know, just dropped in the past like 10 to 20 years. And yeah. a lot of it comes from online for some reason when your words live online as opposed to on the page, they're valued yeah. less, which yeah. doesn't make any sense. I'm going to write just <laughs> as good no matter where that's appearing. And I don't think that the publishing industry as a whole actually supports great art right now. I mean, I appreciate that, like, you know, every publisher has got a couple authors that's making bank and that they're essentially taking the gamble. It's literally gambling on us where they're investing money and they're going to see if they get their investment back. But I have, uh, I mean, I've been with two publishers now. I have never felt financially supported. I Mm -hmm. am a current publisher. I feel supported in many other ways Mm -hmm. but money is like one of the most important ways to be supported like (laughs) you know and I also don't like this culture of like you know you're an artist you can't talk about money I got I got bills to pay I got food to buy right like how do you have space to create good work when you don't feel secure in those things I teach a non-fiction book proposal and publishing process class with a friend of mine who published an amazing book about bedbugs she's a science writer Um, And one of the things we talk about is we're like also very brutally honest about what this process is like, what your financial situation is going to be like, especially as a new author, unless you are already a super famous name, like you're not going to be pulling in the big bucks on your first book. The fact that you might never see royalties, like, yeah, you never like my first book, Eight Flavors has done really, really, really well. I have not seen a dollar. That Mm -hmm. being said, and this will, I think, happen to you, Alicia, (laughs) is like, the best part about it, maybe even more so than the getting to like go out and connect with people at writing the book, is that then for at least a year after the book comes out, you get to talk about it. You yeah. get to engage in this conversation that you don't have to give any introduction to because people have like have read the book and you can engage with people about these concepts, what they think, their experiences. You know, after the first book, I got to travel for like almost two years. There's no official book tour. People are surprised about that nowadays, too. But like, No, they'll do a media tour, but like for certain authors too, like public speaking becomes a part of your job. And I got to speak in a a huge diversity of places. And that was really amazing. Like getting to talk to people about this, this work that I had done um, and have these conversations that I wanted the book to prompt feels so good. And then like that for that one year, you're also like just in the money. There's just money coming everywhere. And you're like, (laughs) you know what? I could do this again. I could do this again. And the cycle just repeats. And now I'm 40. So this is why we have to like figure things out going forward. But (laughs) when your book comes out, it's going to be amazing. You're going to have great conversations and about something that I know you're really passionate about too. And then that will make you start to think you can do it again. And then you might. Uh, The next one will be very, very different. But in your book that actually is out there that people can buy and read and hopefully get you royalties, Eight Flavors, The Untold History of American Cuisine. But in the end, I don't don't care. Now that the work is out there, it's like get it from your library, buy buy it secondhand, borrow it from your friend. To me, in the the end, now that the work exists, the the money part in my mind should not be on the reader it should be on the publisher right of course of course Um, and like the the whole system that doesn't support artists like 
now that the book exists, I want you to don't steal it. Don't steal this book. Buy it from a small independent <laughs> you know, bookstore if you want to, or just like, yeah, get it from your friend's shelf. I don't care. I yeah. hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I actually did buy your second hand at Unnameable Books in Brooklyn. Oh, that's it has nice. a little, or was it book review in on Long Island? I don't know, but it has the price in pencil. So I know I oh. bought it second hand. <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. I think that's yeah. lovely. <laughs> but I wanted to ask how you came up with parameters for your definition of American cuisine. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the idea that I wanted to play with in this book because I think American cuisine is famously difficult to define. Right. And if people do define it, it's in this really negative way. Like, oh, it's all McDonald's, all hot dogs and hamburgers or whatever. And I think that internationally, that's often what people think of American food. And I think right. that Americans often do that to themselves. When, in my experience, I find quite the opposite, that there's a lot of worry about American food becoming homogenized, but mm -hmm. it's so often that I'm doing an event and people will come up and be like, oh, have you tried this local dish? And do you know about this thing? And if you go to this restaurant, like people are so immensely proud of their local culture and cuisine. Right. So I think a lot of American food is based on like physically, geographically where you where you grew up. And then, of course, I think that saying American food is hot dogs and hamburgers presents a very narrow and dare I say racist right. view of who an American is, right? Right. Because I'm an American, you're an American, someone whose family immigrated from China in the 1840s is now fourth, fifth, sixth generation American. Someone who came from India in the 1960s is American if they want to define themselves that way. So it's both a, you mentioned the word sort of erasure when we were talking about this. Yeah. Using that narrow definition of American is erasure of all of the facets and complications of who Americans are. Right. That being said, the fact acknowledging the fact that we were a really diverse country, I then got curious about how individual ingredients like who what cook doesn't have black pepper and vanilla in their kitchen. So how can someone come from this huge variety of backgrounds? And and I mean, when you travel around this country, it often felt like I wasn't going to different states. It feels like I'm going to different countries that both have their own idea of like, this is what America is. But one state over, it's completely different. And they're speaking a different language one state over, too. So like, why then are there these handful of ingredients that de both define us and that Americans consume, you know, in massive levels compared to the rest of the world? Why do we have a particular love for these? So that yeah. was sort of, I, I wanted to, I think American cuisine can be delightfully undefinable. I think that the the idea of cuisine of a certain way of eating and doing things has a more specific definition. And I think that mm -hmm. there can be lots of arguments about what is or isn't American food. And I think that that's all a fun, interesting conversation to have. Right. But so then I got curious about like, what does unite us? And apparently it's a few pantry items and why. Right, right. Which is so interesting. And I loved when you wrote about Food Network. Yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. Well, like, again, as a person who born in the mid 80s, you know, watching Food Network, reading Food and Wine, reading mm -hmm. Travel and Leisure as a kid was how I understood food other than what my mom was cooking. Right. And so, you know, and you point to how they kind of led to this increase in sales for whole black peppercorns versus yeah. like powder. And, and I think that that's such an interesting thing because we don't think in the U.S. or even I as a food writer, like it's difficult to talk about, you know, what ingredient people use that is actually like, I don't know how to say it, but like people don't use things in their whole forms necessarily mm -hmm. in an American kitchen. Yeah. 
Totally. It is a rare thing to grind your own coffee or grind your own peppers. But like, for whatever reason, whole black peppercorns really became a thing. And like, even though it was a joke on SNL that like the huge waiter with the waiter with the huge pepper mill. Yeah. Like, tell me when. And so, um, <laughs> but, you know, people take for granted the whole peppercorns now. But yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, I don't think it's Food Network anymore that's influencing how people eat. How what do you think is influencing how people eat now? That's a great question. I mean, I mean, the Food Network stepped in to fill such a gap that wasn't that was there, you know, like a lot of yeah. food magazines at that point, even the mid 80s were, were super high end, let's say, yeah. or very, very low end, like budget recipes. Yeah. And the Food Network just sort of normalized cooking and normalized yeah. olive oil and, you know, j- just these these whole end fresh ingredients that weren't out of reach in any way that you could yeah. get at your grocery store, that it didn't cost that much more money, but that we weren't using. It sort of leveled up home cooking in a lot of ways, too even for people who mostly were just watching it as opposed to trying to replicate yeah. every recipe. I mean, I think that the major food influence right now is Instagram. And I think that there is some negative aspects to that in that ugly food is delicious mm-hmm. and Instagram <laughs> really only elevates beautiful food and, you know, incredible colors. And I don't really like, I try not to be like a crabby elder millennial who just hates things because they're new. But something really bothers me about venues that are clearly just setups for Instagram pictures. You know what? I just like honesty and logic in anything <laughs> that I'm viewing. And so I don't want food to be set up so that it looks good on Instagram. And I see that in retail and restaurants. They're like, well, this is going to be our Instagrammable dish. And mm-hmm. but then on the flip side, like then I'll get that. I'm like, oh, this is going to be such a tight Instagram photo. People are going to love yeah. it. Um, so in some ways that it can it can be a really negative influence, I think, because if we're just yeah. thinking about obviously we do eat with our eyes, but if we're just thinking about the visuals, we're missing the whole like ugly, delicious panoply of amazing foods out there. That being said, it, it has brought about positive things, too, because a lot of those really vibrant colors are coming from like East Asian ingredients. And so now things like ube and matcha. Matcha, I did predict being an up-and-comer in eight flavors, but I never would have called ube being like, you know, a thing now, which is not only beautiful, but really delicious. And so even though I think there can be some negative aspects to just judging food visually, I think that it has allowed us to not ew when something is an unexpected color, which I think is a very like, Midwest, like white Midwest thing to do to be like, why is it that color? I think that embracing the beautiful, the beauty in food that often comes from around the world. And I, I would say particularly like East Asian countries do these incredible exclamations of like color with their ingredients and flavor and appearance and like and like all these amazing presentation things that I love seeing embraced in American food, because that also means that those people are being embraced as Americans. Right. Well, that leads me to my question of, you know, so many of the ingredients in the book or so many ingredients that we have come to kind of consume in the U.S. aren't indigenous to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And, And so you write that in the conclusion that it's our lack of strict t- tradition that is allowed for this diversity. And of course, like diversity is good in every aspect. But at the same time, I'm always wondering now, what is the difference between assimilation and erasure mm. of, of origins of food? And, and you know, and what is lost when something becomes American mm-hmm. versus retaining its its identity 
um, at Origin. One thing I've been talking about with my husband, because he's um, he's applying for PhD programs right now in history, mm. and he's going to focus his research on rum in Puerto Rico. And we we're talking about people calling coquito Puerto Rican eggnog. Mm-hmm. And, and then talking about like how 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 is that erasing the idea that it it probably has roots that are deeper than U.S. colonization mm-hmm. and industrial canned products coming, but it's so hard to find that. But then the story ends up just being like, it's eggnog <laughs> with coconut. And then, you know, so what is, for you, what is the, and especially now that you're writing about indigenous mm-hmm. foods, but like, what is that difference between assimilation and honoring origin? Yeah, um, a couple things to comment on, yeah. and then I'll see if I can start in a larger thought here. I do think that assimilation and erasure are the same thing. I think that when, you know, we are for a large part, especially in the last hundred years, an immigrant nation, right? And so when yeah. someone comes here and you say, you, you have to speak English, you have to cook this way, you have to dress that way, that is both assimilation and erasure. Yeah. And I think that's a horrid concept. And I think that it's a way that um, luckily immigrants have been able to resist in different ways too. But, as you know, I spent many years working at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, um, teaching immigration history about the Lower East Side, but in this broader way. And probably some of the most, and we did these tours in a way that we could also learn from the people's experiences on the tour. And maybe one of the most heartbreaking things that got sent to me, said to me pretty frequently, is that someone whose parents were, for example, uh, whose grandparents were from Italy, would talk about how they were so sad that they they didn't know how to speak Italian because their grandparents would not speak it in the house. You know, they refused to, and they're really upset they didn't get that cultural connection. Well, then we'll turn mm-hmm. around and talk about how immigrants from Central America don't want to be American and don't want to speak English. And luckily, yeah. I had a job where I could call <laughs> people out. Like, that was part of the process of like, oh, didn't you tell me earlier that you did this? So, like, I hate that, like, turning around and shitting on the next person because it just means that we all sort of lose. Um, and, yeah. you know, luckily, because of the stubbornness of Italian immigrants, we have this really incredible Italian-American food weight here that we all get to experience and enjoy. So and I think, too, by one of the one of the downsides, though, of having a culture that is made up of people all from all over the world coming to this country is that we also have erased indigenous foods and indigenous ingredients. And that was done purposefully, again, because. The American colonial government wanted to come in and take that land and, you know, just push indigenous peoples into the like the least desirable sections or, you know, in some case people, it's a, it's incredible story where people were able to stand their ground and stay, right. remain on their sacred land. But that is a, um, in the face of the deception, manipulation and violence of the American government, that was a very, very difficult thing to do. So, we have mm-hmm. an incredible number of native ingredients and spices, plants, you know, and in some ways that have spread all over the world, like tomatoes and peppers. But like I'm seeing a resurgence of American spice bush, which is a native mm-hmm. spice from like the Midwest and the East that has notes of like clove and nutmeg and allspice in it. That's just like a plant I could probably go into the woods and find right now that we're totally unaware of because it because it wasn't cinnamon. It wasn't these spices that were revered right. in Europe. That being said, too, indigenous people have also adapted and brought in new ingredients and new animals and new ways of living. Indigenous people in the Americas are incredibly adaptive. 
And so they took the best parts of the colonist culture and the parts that suited them and then made that a part of their culture too. So, you know, of course, all of like modern Mexican cuisine, a lot of that has to do all of I guess the biggest thing I can say is that um, the Americas didn't have many domesticated animals. And so that was one of the biggest ways right. that indigenous people's lives changed and indigenous food changed here too. But of course, also, mm-hmm. there's no way we can also say, well, that's not real like indigenous food. Like, for example, coming back to the, the Navajo, they've been shepherding the Navajo churro sheep for 400 years. So we also tend to have like different mm-hmm. ideas of tradition. Like if a white person does something for 100 yeah. years, it's traditional. But if a native person does something for 400 years, it's like, oh, we just took that from the colonists. So all that aside. Right. <laughs> I think that there's also really positive ways to think about it because we are such a jumble of people, both in our country and our cities. We get to like look in each other's cooking pots, right? And go to someone's house and experience a new rec- mm-hmm. recipe or go to a restaurant in our neighborhood. So there is also this, this mutual sharing of food. And I think in particular flavor, it's always like, oh, what is that spice? Like, what is that ingredient? And I think that's why it was drawn to looking at individual flavors, individual ingredients, because often right. it's not necessarily the whole dish that, that comes into our broader culture at once. Right. It's the sriracha sauce or it's the cardamom. It's this introduction of something that's new that we begin to play with. And when I say American too, it's broad American culture. You see that same kind of playing with a new ingredient um, for someone who is white Midwestern or Mexican descent in the Southwest. You know, it is this broader idea of like, a grilled cheese sandwich is delicious, probably no matter where you're from. So that right. everyone gets to have that play <laughs> as opposed to the the dominant culture. I think I maybe think about it as more mainstream than of dominant. Course. No, that's super fascinating. And I think that that's a really great way of thinking about it because I do think that the conversation has been really skewed, especially online and food conversations around like what is cultural mm-hmm. appropriation. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, does this mean I can't cook? Um, tacos in my house if I'm not Mexican. And it's like, no, of course, that's great. Everyone should eat tacos. So claim you invented the taco. I know. Like, (laughs) like, it's just very simple in some ways, right? Like, I mean, in one class I taught, I wish I'd gotten this woman's name, but we were talking about the importance of attribution and we were talking about it specifically in just recipe writing. I was like, you know, even if you were just inspired by somebody else, why wouldn't you attribute that person and, you know, create a community? Why is there this pressure that we have to like, like no, no item of food is new. It's all inspired. No item of art, right? Yeah. is new. It's always inspired by something else. Yeah. And this woman's in my class who turned to me and said, when in doubt, shout it out. And I was like, yes, <laughs> when in doubt, shout it out. If you're worried that you were appropriating someone's culture, shout it out, credit someone. But also if you're worried that yeah. you're appropriating someone's culture, maybe don't do whatever it is that you're about to do. Because if you've got exactly. that little like, is this appropriation? It probably is. But if you're like making somebody's, I think that cooking within someone's culture is an incredible way to learn about someone else's life and mode of living, especially at a time when we can't travel very much right now, right? Because it's not just the mm-hmm. food and the flavor, it's the process of making it that teaches you about how other people yeah. live. And that's an incredible bond. Yeah. And interestingly, like speaking of like American, like erasure and assimilation, food is often the thing that are people the most prejudiced against? Like a hundred years ago, we stopped eating garlic because Italian and Jewish immigrants smelled like garlic and that was seen as a negative. Or, you know, in the 80s or the Mm -hmm. 90s, kids coming from India or South Korea are opening up their lunch boxes and getting the ew and all they want is lunchable, right? So there's definitely that side of it. But at the same time, those same kids grow, like 
Italian food exists because of stubbornness. We have an incredible amount of Korean food, Korean American food now. There is also a stubbornness in giving up our food culture that then ultimately benefits everyone. It's it's one of the things that almost the yeah. dominant culture allows people to maintain. But also, mm-hmm. thankfully, it's one of the ways that we can make incredible connections with people, even if we don't speak their language or um, believe in the same faith. Sitting around that dinner table, experiencing those foods, we all taste, we all eat, we can all talk about food. And it's a really an amazing thing. Right. And I wanted to ask, you know, because working on my book, a lot of narratives around vegan and vegetarian food for the last 50 years has, it's been historicized as Mm, a white mm. thing, which is just so wildly inaccurate. Even within the United States, this is, there is such diversity in people who eat what quote unquote alternative natural foods or eat a vegetarian diet. And I wanted to ask, you know, how What are your techniques? What are your methods for helping you see beyond the narratives of the dominant culture or the dominant historical narrative? Because also a thing that is perpetuated because we're creating so much content online and I've been I've perpetuated this myself is that we're just writing stories and we're grabbing like a random Mm -hmm. source and we're just repeating it. So, you know, as someone who's actually digging into history, you know, what what is what are some good resources? What are some good yeah. techniques for for not just perpetuating stories that are incorrect? Yeah, I, I think that the biggest way I want to frame this is just because they're the easiest source to find doesn't mean that they're the best source. Right. Yeah. Going into the book that I'm currently writing, someone is going to perceive this as racist, but here I go. I wanted to make an effort to include as few white men as possible, because mm-hmm. when you do a Google search for anything the first hits that people with the most media attention, that people with maybe the most sort of money and power and businesses are going to be white men in this country because they mm-hmm. they are the dominant people and have been for a very long time. Does that mean that that white man is the best resource for you? It absolutely doesn't. So the easiest, mm-hmm. the most powerful, even the most written about person may not, in fact, and probably is not the best person to talk about, talk to. Does that mean never talk to any white guy ever? No, absolutely not. There are there are white yeah. guys in this book. But just making that promise to myself made me keep pushing and not be mm-hmm. satisfied with the first answers that I got. Because even in maybe that first phone call, you know, with with that white guy, they start talking about other people who have inspired them or who they support or who they're linked to. And those, if I just stop at that one phone call, I wouldn't get to all those other people that actually that guy thinks is really important to talk about. There was a Amazon review for my first book, which you should never read. But of course I did. (laughs) And someone said, it seems like she went out of her way to be inclusive in this book. And the answer is, yeah, (laughs) yes, I did. But also, I also wanted to tell the real history which is an inclusive history. That's why I study food history, because looking at what we eat finally allows us to access the stories of women and people of color in a way that traditional histories do not. And traditional histories are several generations of both saying that white male history is the only important history, and also because only white men were allowed to do things for so fucking long in this country means that we never get to acknowledge that everybody else was there too, that we were all there at the same time. So my advice is to keep pushing, 
Mm-hmm. Don't go with the first Google search. Don't go with the first phone call. Keep pushing until you find the person where you're like, whoa, like this is this is it. Like this is where the story is. This is how I can understand this deeper. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think part of the issue is that the money doesn't support that kind of writing. Whether things get repeated again and again online because maybe you're getting a hundred bucks or $150 to write your 250, 500 or 800 word. Maybe you're not getting any money because you're trying to break into the industry, right? So when you are making negative dollars per hour to write an article, of course, you're going to take that first Google search. And of course, you're on deadline. And of course, your editor is just pressuring you to like, copy something else if they're not a very good editor, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how those stories get supported. (laughs) So it also takes a certain denial of like, oh man, if I didn't do this much work, I would be more financially stable, but that's also just not the right thing to do. So it really is a battle and it's not easy and the system is not supporting good journalism right now. That I think is the biggest issue. Right. No, absolutely. Well, for you, is cooking a political act? I've been thinking about this lot, and this is your question. <laughs> I think for me, it is a cultural act, yeah. which is a political act in its way. When we cook, yeah. when we cook from home, when we cook within our own cultures, it is an act of preservation. It can be an act of defiance. It can be, I mean, sort of speaking of broader veganism, a friend of mine who is a devoted vegan, which I, I really do respect, said, though, that he thought that everyone was going to eat this way in the future. And this is definitely the way that we should be going. And at that point, I had just come back from the Navajo Nation. And I'm like, you're going to, so you're going to go to these indigenous people and tell them that they can't eat meat anymore because it's bad for the planet, despite the fact that this particular animal has been a part of their culture and their religion for 400 years. Like, mm-hmm. that, so that's not like a colonizer attitude at all. So I realized at that moment that like food is religion in a lot of ways. You know, it it can be directly tied to religion, but it is such a big part of culture to march in and tell someone you can't eat that way is it's it's really destructive. Like that can be erasure, too. So just I think sometimes living your life and eating the foods you want to is this political act. But I think that most people would see it as a, a cultural act, an act of preservation. And especially around the holidays, like. That is the time when even people who are maybe many generations removed from an immigrant or enslaved or colonist ancestor, that's when they're like cooking the foods to reconnect to that story and to their own history. Thank you so much, Sarah. My pleasure. I hope that, uh, yeah, I got really riled up about some things. (laughs) (laughs) I've offended some people. It's probably fine. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy.